0: The island of saints and scholars and gum beans and fucking arse slickers Money, 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 money Seems to make the world go down So won't you tell me why
1: Hello, folks, welcome to the Saint and Scholar podcast. This is your weekly catch up with me, Mick, and my cousin Colin in North Carolina. A gentleman and a scholar. Um, Yeah, as always, uh, we are still crap at social media, so please pass the pod to Like-Minded Souls and review us on Apple Podcasts if you can. Uh, If you get a chance, check out The Political Economy of Everything online. And yeah, here we go. How are you doing, Colin?
0: I'm great. Good stuff. What's the crack over there?
1: i sure things are all right. Things are all right. We're feeding we're feeding the in lamb yos down the field now, and there's less of the scratchy scratches, so that's so that's good. <laughs> <laughs> um, I actually went down this morning, and um, so I moved there. We're kind of strip grazing them on a on a on a grassy field, and uh, it was the thir- It's actually the third morning I've been feeding the meal you know, for protein and obviously Mm -hmm. good development of lambs and whatnot. So uh, interestingly, so the first morning they don't know they're getting the meal. So they're all just happily eating their grass and doing their thing. And you take out like the bag of meal from the back of the Jeep and you run and you like leave it out and they turn around and go, oh, shit, food. And they go over and they eat it. And then the second morning you move the wire again and they're eating their grass and they're kind of like looking over their shoulder at you going, I wonder, are we going to get fed that meal again? And so like, they're kind of watching you go into the Jeep and like, oh, here we go. And you still get an opportunity to run it out. And then this morning it was like... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they swarmed me like bees, you know. And you've got these big, heavy inlamios, and I was soaked, and they were like knocking me over. And I could barely like. I had to run with the bag of meal and just like throw it out as best I can. But yeah, look, they're doing well. I'm sure, things are all right. I hung up some, hung up some decorations today in the front of the house. I'll have to send you a picture. Um, there's a neighbor across the road, and he he really goes all out. Um, <laughs> I tell you what, I actually kissed his sister back about. Twenty-five years ago, I don't think he remembers. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and um, so he has this like amazing, colorful like Christmas decorations display, kind of like national lampoons, kind yeah. of vibe. Um,
0: Intentionally so I, is is he in on the absurdity, or is he is he gung ho with it for for I,
1: I think he's in on it, and like he's got kids. He actually has one of his kids is in is in Jack's class, and. Um, I think it's funny when you have kids of a certain age, it's a funny thing to do. So myself and Jackie went in today into like our local Chinese shop or whatever, and we bought some outdoor decorations. But I think I've decided I'm going to ramp it up. I'm going to ramp it up. I'm going to like...
0: You went to your local Chinese shop?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, in in Chinatown. (laughs) No, there's, a, there's like a, you know, there's one of these Chinese, you know, everything needle to an anchor kind of store, like, you know, not dollar store, but like needle to an anchor, like tools, bedding, And this is, everything. This is
0: purely a, an enterprise controlled by the ethnic Chinese on your Fair Island?
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a few, there's a few of them knocking around, but this is a new one. So it's kind of like. Anyway, I, I, what happened was we were actually in uh, Woody's DIY. We were picking up some craft supplies for some, uh, for some papier-mâché planets for Orin. And um, we were picking up our craft supplies and we saw all these Christmas decorations. And Jack was kind of like, we need to buy some of those. We need to buy like the giant inflatable snowman and the blah, whatever. And I was like, they're all way overpriced in that store. Which is like our local Irish DIY store. It's kind of like your um, Jesus. What's it, what's the Home Home Depot? It's kind of like home Depot. home Depot. Yeah. So it's kind of overpriced, and I was like, let's take a spin, and we took a spin over to the other side of town, Chinatown, and, <laughs> <laughs> and um, went in and and bought a bunch of uh, bought a bunch of cheap lights. So hopefully they're still working come Christmas. Uh, no offense, Chinese. Sorry, I'm just you know whatever they're all made in china anyway so the woody's ones are made in china anyway it's just the chinese are selling them cheaper than the irish that's basically <laughs> it
0: well i think it was what was it zimbabwe it often like the uh, ethnic chinese and all those guys were running all the kind of retail and wholesale merchant trade and they got driven out when when the the local merchants and consumers got angry because of crazy inflation and stuff so you irish mind yourselves don't don't attack those lads just because they, run a, a they, they have, run a healthy business. Maybe a they do run a
1: healthy business. Maybe they have
0: uh, connections back home that they can get the goods in a little bit cheaper. You know? yeah. And yeah. I actually saw that there's a guy on the news here out in L.A. Uh, a, a, he, he was probably born in China, but he's a Chinese-American citizen guy. And he was sort of running like the PPP, like the biggest kind of warehouses for... Yeah distribution because there was like a lot of fraudsters getting involved with that and like not delivering product and he was just like no my uncle's over there i get the product here and like yeah i'll charge you a little bit more but i i have like you know <laughs> essentially freighters coming over every day with all this stuff so well you know pays to have your your connections familiar especially it does, especially. Yeah, it fucking
1: does. anyway yeah. it's the we're getting a lot uh, this uh, this season it's sort of your your november december season uh 2020 in ireland um it's it's all of these hundredth anniversaries of the war of independence are coming up and it's really mm-hmm. interesting how it is not celebrated it's really strange it's really if it was in any other country mm-hmm. you know in any other sort of political environment, I say celebrated, like obviously death is nothing to celebrate, but it's like remembrance. Like we, we can't, mm-hmm. like Irish people just can't like let go of like this kind of oh, I don't know how you say it. It, It's just, it's so complicated. It's so complicated. It's like you're under colonial power for so long and they can't just let go and say, look, it was okay to have an uprising (laughs) against the colonial power. And it's okay that, you know, that's what happened. But I guess the 100th anniversary of Cork burning, basically. Um, So like the Tans um, basically burned down Cork this time 100 years ago, like burnt, Jesus, like I don't know, what did they, like 40 businesses and like 300 homes and they burnt down City Hall and they burnt down the library. And like (laughs) it was a, that was as kind of a reprisal for, it was a reprisal for uh, an IRA ambush in the town. Mm -hmm. Um, And obviously like the IRA 1920 is a different entity to the IRA 1980, but so, yeah, it was a reprisal for a, an ambush in the town, but it was also a reprisal for the Kill Michael ambush, which the anniversary of Kill Michael ambush was uh, arranged by Tom Barry, mm-hmm. um, and that's where they shot and killed 17 auxiliaries who would have been higher ranking, kind of the elite auxiliaries, yeah. the elite soldiers in uh, in in the occupying forces, and they killed them near McCroom. And, um, yeah, so it was kind of that's when things kind of came to a head. I suppose, like, you kind of have to take it back to the start, right? So I'll, I'll give you, a, sorry, I'll, I'll give you the beginning of the complications as to why we don't, like, just stand up and can say, I, yeah, "Can
0: I hazard a Can I hazard a g- guess?" And I could be completely off. Do you think any of it is rather than if if there is shame about fucking using violence to get the British out, then you guys. Need a kick in the arse because there's nothing to be ashamed. But it, is it not more maybe? Yeah, the complications that followed and the kind of civil war and all this kind of I, is that not sort of what gives people a little bit of the heebie jeebies? Is it? Is it not more your internal kind of uh, fratricide?
1: There's a there's a issues are a, the north is still occupied. Yeah. Sure. Okay. So issue a is they kind of got abandoned. Uh yeah. Issue b is the complicated legacy of the original Sinn Féin Mm -hmm. um, and the fact that sort of provisional Sinn Féin, shall we say, and Mm -hmm. current Sinn Féin in Ireland, in the Republic of Ireland, Mm -hmm. they would claim that War of Independence legacy, Mm -hmm. whereas Fianna Gael certainly don't want to kind of claim it, even though, you know, Cumann the Gael and Michael Collins was their guy. Mm -hmm. And Fianna Fall might have wanted to claim it at some point, but mm-hmm. they certainly can't now because because of the complication with the North. So mm-hmm. all of a sudden you, you're like, anyway, I, we'll go back. We'll go back. We'll take a step back. Right.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So obviously we're under British rule for 800 years, <laughs> close to 800 years. Some and crack. Some <laughs> crack. So Oliver Cromwell, you know, all the way back. Penal laws, the famine, you name it. It was, you know, all under British rule. So, Surely uh,
0: there were some good times too, Mick.
1: <laughs> <laughs> what have the British ever done for us? <laughs> yeah, the, they halved our population basically. Like, uh, the, the population of the island of Ireland has still not recovered to levels pre-1840s. Uh, like, like, we had about eight and a half million on the mm. island in in 1840 and between mm. famine, emigration, economic, absolute ruin, uh, our population dropped to like less than four million, I think, yeah. um, by the 70s, by the 1970s. Yeah. So you can imagine. Um, yeah, anyway, pretty grim. So basically things were uh, things kind of when World War One was in full swing. I mean, there were there were Irishmen fighting in British battalions in, in, in the First World War um, because, I mean, we were still part of the empire. And uh, obviously, 1916 happened. So the 1916 revolution happened. Most of the people who listen to this will know what happened in 1916. And it kind of became a unifying moment down south. Uh, like originally, people might not have been on board with nationalism, really. And when they saw what happened to the revolutionary leaders in 1916, everyone said, OK, this is not the way to go. And, and Sinn Féin uh, led by, well, actually, it was Arthur Griffith initially, mm-hmm, but then mm-hmm. Dev. Uh, Sinn Féin ran in the 1918 parliamentary election. So it was for British Parliament mm-hmm. and they absolutely swept the boards. They took, I want to say, like, instead of the Irish parliamentary party, who would have been like by far the largest party uh pre nineteen eighteen, um and would have happily sat in British Parliament and mm-hmm. and sort of ruled from abroad, shall we say. Um Sinn Fein said, no, we're gonna stand candidates in it and they won uh I don't know, seventy or eighty seats, seventy something seats, and uh the Irish Parliamentary Party got wiped out, um, and they were kind of like they were the, the British, how would you say? British sympathising, whatever, Yeah. the happy happy to be British Irish, they got wiped out in that election. And obviously the unionists, we were still in Unified Island at the time and the unionists up north got a few seats as well. Um, but Sinn Féin being Sinn Féin, uh, true to form even- be. Yeah, baby. Yeah. Even back then they said, no, we're not going to sit in a British parliament. We're going to start our own parliament called the Dáil. So Dáil Éireann, sat. Dall Aaron sat for the first time after the December 1918 elections and decided to rule from decided to rule from home and rightly so and what happened basically from that point on was the Royal Irish Constabulary who would have been our occupying we'll say police force but we'll say it was an occupying force because sure. it was still the British force Uh they became seen as an occupying force and so even if you were born in Balbriggan or Ballymun or you know Ballygo backwards everybody knew the score at this stage and this is this is a thing that Irish people have a problem getting their heads around if it's 1919 and you've decided to keep your job you're an Irish person mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you've decided to keep your job as a police officer in the mm-hmm. RIC you are now wearing the wrong shirt. And you, anyone, like there was a, I'm not going to say a mass exodus, but there was an exodus from the police force after 1918. Like, here's a point actually on 1918. That was the first election women were allowed to vote in. So any woman over 30 (laughs) was allowed to vote in. And also it was the first election that the kind of dispossessed youth were allowed to vote in. So if you are over previously there was like, it was tied Properied, up in prop yeah. and property exactly, and now it was like anybody over twenty one, any male over twenty one could vote, and any woman over thirty. Like, look, it's not equality, but it's something, and and so basically there was a large nationalist movement, and people knew the score. And Michael Collins went out there and uh, started. I'm not going to say he started the war, but the 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 Irish Republican Army, the yeah, they started a war, and they decided to fight it on their own terms, they weren't going to stand in an open battlefield and and take Mm -hmm. on the British because that's just fucking insanity. and makes no sense. Um, So they started this kind of tit for tat war and we'll roll it into 1920 now. It kind of, it was ramping up slowly but surely. Interestingly, in September 1920, your great grandmother died of Wheels disease in Tullow,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: um, out here on the farm and the week after her death, um, there were two RIC officers killed in Tullow and the Mm -hmm. Tans responded and burnt, like there were reprisals and they burnt a section of the town. And it was ugly. Like, basically what would happen is the RIC officers would be killed. The occupying force would come in and not know who to like, you know.
0: Collective punishment, man. Collective punishment. Colonial practice.
1: Exactly. So anyway. Our family was obviously going through personal trauma at the time but uh, the whole country was going through a trauma at the time and it kind of it ramped up at that point there was only uh, like maybe two or three hundred dead at that point but then uh basically what happened was uh Collins and um, Collins and his crew decided to decided to execute a bunch of spies and lieutenants and senior British Army figures yeah, on yeah on the morning of Bloody Sunday in November. And what happened was they just went into their homes, their hotels, their beds. They were the Cairo gang they were called, actually.
0: Oh um, boy. You better believe I know the Cairo gang.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Tell us, what do you know
0: about the Cairo gang? Well it's it's a it's a thread you can kind of follow throughout the history in Ireland and the North, but also more broadly and so you know they're essentially the kind of intelligence officers of of the the British Army, and you know they kind of uh, cut their bones or whatever that phrase is. Cut their cut teeth. Their, cut their teeth. That's right. In the yeah. Middle East. Um, yeah. What were they up to out there? Ah, sure, keeping an mind, keeping an eye on the <laughs> local population. Sure. Uh, so yeah, I mean, so they they kind of came back and are running the same tactics. Uh, you know out there they're dealing with in Palestine kind of Arab nationalist movement which is mostly mobilizing out of Damascus but it, it's spreading all over and they're also, Palestine is also dealing with this enormous migration wave uh, of Jewish folks from, from Europe and from the Ottoman Empire and the British are you know half you know half blessing it and then you know they're just gaming the whole system. Yeah. Um. So like anyway, they, they bring the like, tactics of control that they learn over there, and, and they bring it back here, and it's the same thing later with with the provos up north. So like the, the the Brits who are running the intelligence who are there, most of them had just come from Aden uh, in Yemen, and and the British kind of really dirty war that they ran there, which is really horrific if you look into it. Uh, and it's all the same, all the same stuff that they did in the North. And and that war got as dirty as any. It wasn't like huge in casualties, obviously comparative to what yeah. they've done with brown people, but uh, it was obviously really grimy. And all those, the tactics kind of from the, the frontier, they always come home, you know, Man. and... Uh, right on their own and, doorstep. Yeah, in your, in your case, you guys are... You're really interesting because you both are a colonial subjugated people, um, but then you're like you're in Europe, you're right next door, so you're you're all you're in this like space that kind of occupies. It's this like strange crossroads, you know, because um, even like Connolly, Connolly's writings, you know, they flow to the third world sort of, and he's like, because most of most of the socialists before him weren't really given. Much of an eye to the the subjugated peoples, you know, you were meant to be like. They don't have enough industry. You're not going to get revolution in any of those places. And so, he's an inspiring figure. And then Collins and the first IRA are, you know, incredibly, incredibly influential for all these kind of post-colonial revolutionary movements. Both tactics, you know, how how do you fight a war against this like enormous colonial apparatus? What do you do? You yeah, like you said, you can't take them out in the streets, so you have to go in when they're sleeping sure and you know yeah
1: so they kill like I I was reading like I didn't actually know they had a list initially of like 50 officers for bloody Sunday morning and they were like yeah Jesus we can't be killing all of them I think actually from on high it came down um, seriously like we don't have enough evidence against 20 of them yeah but uh, I didn't have
0: enough bullets
1: (laughs) but between 20 and 30 of them they were like these guys are Stonewall mm-hmm. spies, British Army. You know, do what you can. Do what you do what you can. So, anyway, they went the morning bloody Sunday. They went and they um, executed these guys and uh, disappeared into the day. And as bad luck would have it, on that same day, there was uh, a match. Uh, so, like. You can go back into history about this as well. Um, But the GAA, which was like previously a band uh, organization, uh, the GAA were having uh, a football match in Croke Park in Dublin. Now, Croke Park is not Croke Park as we know it now, which is like an 80,000 all seater, like one of the finest stadiums in stadia in, in, in Europe. But uh, back then it was, I think, maybe about 15,000 people were going to watch this game between Dublin and Tipperary. Tipperary were playing football because Tipperary actually knew how to play football back then. Um, (laughs) Interestingly, I'll follow up on that one later. But um, so what happened was the auxiliaries and the RIC uh, basically were looking for someone to looking for some blood. Like everybody was frightened. All of the all of the senior army figures had retreated to Dublin Castle, which obviously the British were controlling, and the auxiliaries were sent out to kind of round up any suspects. And where better to find suspects than at a Gaelic game uh, filled with young Irish men? And um, what happened was they showed up with their they showed up with a, a pretty serious force and they they killed they killed a whole bunch of people like like they killed 14 civilians including three children like a like a 10 year old and 11, they just shot 65 mm. injured wounded 65 killed 14 including a 10 year old and 11 year old child who were up in trees they basically got shot out of trees by the british army and a fifteen-year-old as well, and a woman as well was was killed, and a play, like players on the field were executed and killed who were playing the game, um, and that was it. Like that was that was it. That was there was if there was anything that was going to galvanize the Irish people against the colonial forces, well, going to a sporting event and executing a bunch of people is going to be what happened. So then, what happened after that? Pretty quickly after that. I think morale was pretty low in West Cork at the time with Tom Barry's crew. And they decided that, like, they needed a big win. So the um, they decided to take on these elite forces in two lorry loads of elite forces in McCroom or close to McCroom, Michael. And they set up an ambush and killed 17 uh, auxiliaries who would have been mm-hmm. the elite at the time, elite army officers at the time. And from then it rolled into, obviously, uh, the Cork, the, the cork, more Cork ambushes and tit for tat. And then the auxiliaries and the and, uh, tans decided to burn down the city. And Like, what's interesting, I, I kind of, I, I saw a photograph posted uh, this week and uh, I love it. I love it because it's so honest and it's mm-hmm. so like, you do not see this. And you can imagine at some point in Vietnam, Or Mm -hmm. in Iraq, Mm
0: -hmm. or
1: in so many of these other places throughout the world, this is the monument. So there's a large monument to the three uh, Irish soldiers who died in the ambush. Apparently, there was a false surrender, so the guys like put up their hands, and as the ambushers approached, the auxiliaries opened fire and killed three guys. But anyway, so there's a there's a large monument to. To the to the Irish guys there, and there's a, a stone, there's a monument on the road as well. And here is the inscription on the on the stone, and it says, yeah. "And on this road too, died seventeen terrorist officers of the British forces." Good lad. And that's and that's it. Like I mean, they say you know one man's freedom fighter is another man terrorist, but like this occupying force were terrorists. They were terrorists. Really? They were burning down civilian homes. They burned 300 homes in Cork, 300 fucking residential homes of ordinary people and 40 businesses and like fucking hundreds of millions of damage burned the city down.
0: Well, can I tell you something about uh, both like the legal but discursive use of the word terror and terrorism? Please do. You might find it interesting. Uh, So like through the entire history from the the ages you were talking about up and through the 80s terrorism was always understood as it's a tactic okay it's it's a tactic where like the primary audience isn't the victims themselves but those who will learn about this right yeah so in that sense a state the british and this like the the british government can do terrorism just as you know if the ira chose that tactic that would also be terrorism but it yeah it was, it was a, it was a tactic that any player in the game could use governments, non-governments, whatever. Uh, in the eighties, uh, Bibi Netanyahu's brother was a paratrooper. Yeah. And he got whacked out in Uganda, I believe. Uh, when they tried it, the, uh, a Palestinian group had hijacked a plane and they, they never actually hurt anyone. And they were hijacking for a while, some crack, yeah. but, uh, they tried to storm the plane and had dressed up. I think if I'm remembering stuff they they had dressed up as like red cross people or some shit and then opened fire. Anyway, his brother got killed. His brother was named, um, Jonathan, I believe. And in the aftermath of that, they set up this Institute in his name and they started kind of, uh, reconceptualizing what terrorism was. Uh, And the the terrorism you know today is essentially that which a terrorist does, Yeah. right? This is is the way it is presented to all of the public. Terrorism is no longer a behavior or a tactic. It is what a terrorist does. And who is a terrorist? Well, whoever the government says is the, you know what I mean? So it's no longer kind of uh, something we can evaluate based on just like, well, what actually happened there? Okay, that was terrorism or that was terrorism. Now it's just whatever the people we call terrorists do, is terrorism, and this all kind of stemmed from from this uh, this institute that was founded in Bibi Netanyahu's brother's name, and then kind of just like spread this propaganda, proselytized this ceaselessly across across the West and elsewhere, and then eventually just became kind of second nature, sort of what legally and in the way we talk about things that it's it's not. It's not state terrorism or non-state terrorism. Like It, it reduces just to, like, uh, the, the bad guys who the government doesn't like. That's what... Whatever they do is, by definition, ipso facto, prima facie, terrorism. Yeah. You know, and it's just like... Fucking Netanyahu. Hello, guessing yeah. <laughs> Motherfucker. Man, yeah, like... Uh, uh,
1: what?
0: Yeah, yeah. It was just like it was... I only bring it up because it was like a much more sophisticated conversation through the 70s you know you talk about okay of course we call these the paramilitary movements or they're they're these yeah, yeah. Uh, you know we're talking about what they do it's, xyz it is, it is guerrilla warfare yeah you know? exactly and you that's know. how the newspapers wrote about it and they wrote yeah. about it like uh the you know whatever that's uh, the french in algeria it was a terrorist attack by the french state on this you know and it was like it was just kind of it was a more accurate descriptor of what yeah. was happening you know, and then once this fucking like little think tank, essentially, I think it's called the Jonathan Institute moment, I read this French fellow's dissertation, and he just covers like the history of this conceptualization of, of terrorism. And it's really interesting, but it's, it all changes there. And they just, you, I bring it up also kind of because they've done a similar thing with anti-Semitism recently, where they've they've kind of Ah, uh, they've, they've changed like the uh, the quote unquote official definitions that the essentially the Holocaust Museum in DC uses to make like a anti-Israel um, yeah. talk uh, is also now they're trying to and it's just like this is how this stuff happens. It's not like organic. It's it's like very um, that that one preconceived and that one of, really uh, that strategic. one really
1: kills me. The yeah. the anti-Semitism like I I hate it. I, I like I it really bothers me because it's like anti-Semitism, like the notion of anti-Semitism through my childhood, like generally, and through my life is basically associated with the Holocaust. Right. Mm -hmm. It is associated with the sentiment that led to the Holocaust. And it is associated with evil, basically. Like, and these people, like, let's be clear, like, it's the Israel. It's the state of Israel. Yeah, of it is, and it is the crimes of the state of Israel. All of a sudden, if you say, mm, you know, maybe bulldozing those Palestinian homes and doing whatever, if you criticize or if you if you criticize the state of Israel, now you're accused of being an anti-Semite. Like, even though my wife, <laughs> my wife is of a Jewish family, and like whatever. I would be like, I, I, you know, I make a comment on like some whatever board or some thread on some forum and it's like, I'm an anti-Semite. The old uh, Israeli, uh, what do you call them? The Israeli bot farms yeah. are like out labeling the anti-Semites left, right and center. And the reality of it is like, I'm not like pro-Palestine. I'm not pro-Israel. I'm not anti-anything. I'm just like, things are, they are guilty of terrorism in Palestine. Like, yeah. make no mistake, that's terrorism. But,
0: but the fact of the matter, too, is it's, you know, it's, it's anti-Semitic in and of itself to assume that Jewish people need associate with Israel. Exactly.
1: Right? Exactly. Like
0: they're not. No, these are different things. This is a state and, yes. uh, that exists independently. It has almost, you know, it has nothing to do with the religion or the ethnicity. There's yeah. There's Jewish people that live there. Yeah. Jewish people that happen to run the government, but the Israel in itself up itself has nothing to do with with Judaism or with Jewish people, and so it's like the the conflation, and it, it And I would redounding. posit that I would posit that anyone who
1: who makes it makes that association is an anti-Semite themselves, basically. Yeah, yeah. You
0: and know? and a Semite, you know, Arabs are Semites too. So yeah. they are really going to be sticklers <laughs> about the semantics, it makes no sense. But it's yeah, it's it's a bunch of it's a, a bunch, bunch of baloney. Books. Yeah. But oh anyway.
1: yeah. Go back on. to cheerier stuff, right? <laughs> back to cheerier stuff. Cheerier stuff. Bloody Sunday, right? Sorry, because I said I said it, it round back to this one. So it was a football game between Tip and Dublin, right? Tip haven't won uh, a monster title in football in eighty-five years, and they won it this year. So, and obviously Dublin won the Leinster because they've won the last ten of them. Yeah. So so basically there was a repeat of of Dublin oh, and tip for the first time since 1920, like a hundred years later, in an yeah. all Ireland football semi-final. Good How crazy. COVID, is that?
0: Good thing COVID will be keeping any Brits out soon. <laughs>
1: yeah, and if and if, if the old COVID don't get him the Brexit will um oh, oh, That's that's a Hames now at the minute. Like we're obviously whatever it's what day is today? Saturday. So this weekend is kind of it's like the deals have to be hammered out and obviously deals on the north have to be hammered out and trade deals. And it's all ugly. And I don't even want to get into it because I've actually tried actively to avoid the negotiations, like when I was a child. Like, I'll tell you, when I was a child, there was two words that existed on the news for about a decade and a half. And I got so sick of hearing them and they were a peace process. Yeah. (laughs) The peace process, the peace process, the peace process. And I was like, oh, whatever. And then all of a sudden there'd be like another massacre. There'd be like a bunch of people killed or whatever, you know. And uh, it was all about the peace process. And look, peace eventually happened. Thank God. But uh, oh, man. Yeah. So Brexit, the peace process and Covid. If I never hear, if I I never hear telephone again, it'll be too soon. So, yeah, anyway. So the thing I wanted to talk about with you was, right, War of Independence happens, right? The the um, Julia Roberts, uh, <laughs> Liam Neeson version uh, that we're all familiar with happened after the War of Independence, where obviously Collins goes and negotiates with Lloyd George and the Boyos. I think Churchill was probably pissing around then. He was in the fucking Navy, wasn't he? He was after killing about 50,000 people. He was unfortunately out
0: of detention in the Boer War. If only they had fucking put a bullet in that <laughs> fella's head. They really should have.
1: Ah, look, it. they've been getting high on his farts for a fucking generation since. Anyway, right. so the negotiations happened. Negotiations happened. Obviously, the North being a majority unionist area yeah. of the of, of the island of Ireland was yeah. partitioned off. And down south, you had a pro-treaty group who were like, look, we have our own, like, uh, so the treaty said, like, we were still loyal to the queen or the king, I guess, at the time, mm-hmm. uh, loyal to the monarchy. And, uh, you know, the British flag was still fine, but we had a home rule, basically. Mm-hmm. We had our own rule. And people were like, okay, it was the free state. Um, some people were satisfied with that. And some people like Dev, who was uh, head honcho and Sinn Féin. So it split there, right? So first of all, it was Sinn Féin and then it split. And it was a bunch of other parties came together, I think, like the Gael and whatever, and they formed mm. Fine Gael and they became the pro-treaty group and Collins headed that. And I mean, being pro-treaty was not like a, how would you say, it was not like this sort of ideology. It was like viewed as a stepping stone. It was like, no, we don't want the flag or the pledge to the monarchy or any of that sort of stuff. But the anti-treaty side, which is Dev and what was left of the Shinners at the time, uh, were like, no, we're not going to, whatever, we're not going to go along with it. And then civil war happened. I'm not going to like get into the whole Irish civil war thing. That's for another day. Uh, Bad stuff happened. Just put it mildly. Um, should do the tour the next time you come over. Do the tour of Kilmainham Jail. It's actually amazing. It's really it's something to see,
0: and uh, so it just it's it's just so constitutive of your politics. You know, from that day forward, in these really weird ways, like you've kind of until recently, and until the reemergence of the Shinners, oddly enough, you've yeah. kind of been devoid of ideological dispute. You're Absolutely. you're kind of you're the kind of breaks, the cleavages in the politics. Well, like they're obviously always like very local and, and like Ireland has like the most local politics of kind of anywhere. It's really interesting, but it's also just like uh, historical, historical slash tribal, really, you know, and and the the kind of completely it's, it's, and like the the Schinders ideologically were uh, across time, you know, and with the, with, The provost, too, they were always a little bit uneven. You know, you had some like real serious kind of Catholics almost, you know, they wouldn't be like, it's not like they're right wingers, but they'd be on the conservative side. And then you had real lefties that were kind of, um, you know, is more moved by kind of a a socialist vision than, you know, the Republican one. It was kind of interchanged, you know. That's, uh, that sort of
1: came, that that came further on after, after like sort of the border wars in the 50s and stuff. But, but, What was interesting was Dev was still heading them up in the early 20s. And look, but Dev, they were still abstaining from, he said, they basically said, look, when we don't have to say the oath and when we are our own country again, then we'll come back. And Dev was, Dev was obviously angling to get back into power, to get back into proper politics again. And even though he had taken the stance that had caused the fucking civil war, he was still trying to get back. Mm-hmm. in, even though we weren't a republic yet, we weren't, we, we, we still had the fucking British flag. So basically in 1926, he leaves Sinn Féin <laughs> and he takes yeah. most of the party with him um, yeah. and forms Fianna Fáil, who like tried to identify as being the Republican Party, but they weren't like truly the Republican Party, even from, even mm-hmm. from day dot, because things continued as they were. And what was left of Sinn Féin in the Republic kind of diluted, like in the 40s, I think they tried to, um, I think they basically tried. There was, I'm not going to say there was a bunch of money left over, but there was their legacy was left, the Sinn Sinn Féin party's legacy was left and Fianna Fáil couldn't claim it because they had bailed out, they had ideologically bailed out on the doll. Uh, mm-hmm. initially. And we're like, no, because we have, we don't want this flag. And then Dev had obviously eventually been like, oh, I want to get back into power and brought his people with him and made Fina fall, So they can't claim Sinn Féin's history. And obviously Cum the Gael and, and Feingale couldn't claim mm-hmm. it either because they're, mm-hmm. you know, the blue shirts, whatever. And in the 1940s, what was left of Sinn Féin, because it still remained as a political apparatus in the Republic. Um, it wasn't the Republic at the time. Well, Actually, it did become the republic then, uh, but they tried to claim whatever funds were left or whatever, <coughs> whatever assets they could, and they munitions. could not <laughs> munitions, whatever it was. But they were defeated, and and they lost out, and that was it. And that was basically that was kind of the end of Sinn Fein in the republic until I want to say the modern day, the nineties, and. Yeah. This is the part of history I'm not great at. So obviously things rolled on 40s, the 50s, the emergency, the Second World War. Ireland was an absolute state. Everybody left Um things were terrible for the Catholics and nationalists up north. And then the 1970s rolled around. And that is probably where you know more than I do.
0: Yeah, um, well, I don't know how deep we want to. I can give you the abridged version, which is that uh, George Mitchell, multiple-time multiple, multiple time visitor to uh, Jeffrey Epstein's island and likely pedophile, arrives on your fair island with Hillary Clinton, hero of the people, and crafts justice for everybody, essentially, from scratch. Now, Hillary was d- dodging bullets on the tarmac when she touched down in Ireland because... It was an active war zone, you know what I mean? An active, like, it was. okay, listen, more people died yesterday in the United States from COVID than died during the Troubles, which lasted 30 years. But leave that aside for a moment. It was just bullets literally <laughs> pinging against your house and breaking in glass at all times.
1: Question, had George Mitchell, uh, like put the dopers away for doping in baseball at this stage or, no, or was no, that this after was this? Bef-
0: this was before that.
1: Oh so he cut his I, teeth. He cut his teeth in like international peace brokering and then like went out to pasture and like shot him Barry Bonds.
0: Well he uh there was a lot of pedophilia uh, allegedly um in between all of this, okay? Oh, okay. And uh Don't forget Obama also um, embarrassed him by appointing him his peace envoy to Palestine, at which point he arrived there and was like, oh, it doesn't seem like you guys are very serious about doing anything, in fact. And so that was kind of his last go. Uh, But in his post-mortem, he he got dragged into the... (laughs) Jeff Epstein Epstein scandal. So good for him. (laughs) What a legacy. But yeah, I mean, the... The kind of origins... the the, uh, The main
1: thing I wanted to, like because I don't know the ins and outs, and you've you probably read more about this than I have. So the Shinners kind of started up, not that they started up again, but they got traction in the North in the 70s again. Yeah. And they broke then into obviously two groups. So there was the provisional Sinn Féin and there's official Sinn Féin well, a workers party, was that what they're called? Mm-hmm. So like they split, but eventually everybody sort of yeah. Went to Jesus. Went to the provost.
0: Yeah.
1: You know. Um and why was that? Was that like charismatic leadership or what was like all the young men were obviously joining the rat at the time, or what was the people decided let's have the country first and then worry about uh and then worry about
0: the means of production. Um Yeah, I mean it's it's um it's a less kind of compelling Sell really, you know what I mean. Uh, the the immediacy of your repression, the immediacy um, of your struggles was less the kind of clear cut uh, class thing. You know, it was quite yeah quite obviously uh, defined and delineated based on on, on your ethno religio kind of position yeah. in, in the north. You know what I mean. And so it was like it's always kind of Uh, it's always been sort of a more difficult political project the kind of the workers project in general. It's just, it's, it's more complicated because uh, these other sort of identity markers are uh, so easily mobilized and appealed to, you know, and, and um, I, I imagine that probably would have had a little something to do with, but then, you know, you, you still had plenty of, you, you had plenty of kind of radicals Marxists that ended up, in this sort of senior ranks of, of uh provisional Sinn Féin, You know what I mean? And, yeah. and so like they uh, yeah. I mean it wasn't without
1: they I mean they're identify they identify down here now down, I say down here, they, they identify in the Republic as very much the leftist party. Yeah, like yeah, they are the party of the left. They are the main opposition in the left because we don't have a Labour Party. This is terrible now when you look at the so obviously our Labour Party's heritage, and like the proud heritage of it from the Labour movements like a century mm-hmm. ago. And now we're just left with a bunch of people who are hanging around for their pensions Um, yeah. um not going to get into the Labour Party, but uh, yeah, so the, They suck. And the problem with Sinn Fein down here is that, yeah, you might get some like young working class people and whatever, Mm. but there's no kind of, for example, like right in the States, right? And like you have intelligent middle class, like well educated people who are leftist, right? Mm. And who are willing to get behind Bernie. And democratic socialism, or whatever you want to call it, in the Republic of Ireland, people are so slow to get on board with Sinn Féin. And I like—I mean, I understand a certain amount of it because our parents' generation—they just look at them as like the next. Like, they look them at the IRA. Really,
0: they look, they they're looking at the
1: IRA. The I mean, when I grew up, do you know, when I grew up, this is really this is <laughs> that sounds fucked up, but it's true. When I grew up. I didn't get to see Jerry Adams on the telly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was banned. I, and, and they used to overdub his fucking voice. They used yeah. to, like, record somebody else saying whatever he said because, like, his face and his voice was banned on Irish national broadcaster. And, like, Jesus Christ. Sorry, that is just ridiculous to me, but that was the case. And in the early stages, like, you probably know more about this than me, but, like, they kind of they decided to begin their journey down south again when, when the peace when the peace process re- reached its kind of zenith up north. Obviously, mm-hmm. you're talking about ceasefire, Good Friday Agreement, and then they like began the campaign in the Republic to basically mm-hmm. they're like, if we do have a unified island, we as Sinn Fein want to be the big party there. We don't want to be the big fish in the small pond in the north. We want to be the big fish in the big island if you know what i mean mm-hmm. and and so they began growing down south and initially like they're see this is i think this is actually the part that my generation like the the well educated of my generation have, most have a problem with because they went into these working class areas and stoked up this kind of like identity politics nationalism kind of mm. you know oh like a little like bit of I, cosplaying. A little bit of cosplaying. A little bit of cosplaying, yeah. Like up the ra, Like mm-hmm. basically every Celtic jersey wearing
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: tatted up taxi driver from inner city Dublin was a Sinn Féin voter. And that's was their initial base. And mm-hmm. like I, I have nothing against taxi drivers. <laughs> I have absolutely nothing against taxi drivers or Celtic football club or tattoos. But people kind of get. The idea And down in Cork It was the same Like it was That was kind of your That was your initial Sort it of It was shin- kind of a, yeah. The
0: performative Sort of nationalism Performative yes. republicanism Are any of these people Doing anything To If can yeah. help you win The North No But you know no. They do have a tattoo And they'll be they'll, they'll give the slogans Yeah
1: And they got into the whole um, Like in the depths Of like the sort of Heroin epidemic At the mm-hmm. time In the like 90s You know They like Had these community groups And they were like Torturing junkies and dealers, basically pushers, 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 out, 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 kind of mm-hmm. fucking this kind of stuff, and then of course, obviously, they were funding themselves at the time. <laughs> the the provost at the time, the ra were funding themselves with bank robberies. And now, Mick, I need to
0: I need to correct you here. There's no uh, relationship between Sinn Féin <laughs> and the Ra, and I don't know, I don't know why you keep you just keep, you know, jumping from one term to the other. So sorry, I'm really- I'm
1: using them interchangeably. Uh, officially, there is there is none, but I'm going to use them interchangeably, and I may be absolutely wrong in my opinion. So anyway, let
0: me just interject again. Yeah. Uh, Colin on this podcast does not endorse this position. <laughs> in case any of our friends are listening, well done, lads. Keep doing your thing. I've got no <laughs> objections. Okay, cheerio.
1: So basically, they. This is this is what I won't say tarnished any kind of legacy they had. So basically they did what they did in the north. There was a peace process that took forever. But eventually, everybody sort of came to Jesus and stopped killing each other. And all the people who were in prison got let out of prison. And most of them, you know, the, the Republicans wrote books and did interesting stuff. And the unionists had big muscles. Yeah. And eventually, uh, and that's okay. And then down in the Republic, the problem was, there was no like money coming in for the struggle anymore from the United States or fucking Libya, mm. as we discussed before. There was this wasn't happening anymore, so they had to fund themselves in other ways. And there was like, like a like a twenty-five million pound sterling bank robbery, and there was uh, like credit union robbery down here, and there was a police officer killed, and there was lots of, like their bodies disappeared. You know there was very shady stuff happened in that window, and I remember that, and my generation remembers that. And that's what turns us against Sinn Féin, or any notion of of Sinn Féin, and, like, I, I can't vote for Sinn Féin because my fear, as a farmer here, is that they're very much a leftist party down here. So, my party, <laughs> my parties are Fine Gael, Fine blah, whatever. That's how you vote. You vote for the centre-right party if you're a farmer. That's just how it goes. Um, I don't really fall into those brackets and I don't vote for those people. I'm like trying to go to the Social Democrats or trying to like put some bit of leftism into it, but I can't vote for fucking Labour because they're a joke and the Sinn Féin, uh, the Sinn Féin candidates are pretty poor here. at Anyway, I'm not going to get into all of that. But the problem is, the problem is people in the Republic of a certain ilk generation, whatever, have kind of rejected Sinn Féin and the people in the north. One, a really interesting conversation I had, right? I thought this was a brilliant conversation. I ended up randomly sitting beside uh, a farmer from the north on a plane back from Naples a couple of years ago. And we were having a chat about politics in the North, and he was really engaging and really like interesting about it. And basically, the, his problem was he had no choice. He had to vote for Sinn Féin and he was OK with voting for Sinn Féin. He was like, look, at the moment, it's a kind of semi nationalist struggle. And initially it was a civil rights struggle. And mm. then it became a nationalist struggle. And he's like, now it's binary. Your options are binary. Either you're voting for the DUP or you're voting for Sinn Féin. And everybody else got kind of swallowed up in it for the most part. And he's like, my political ideology is nowhere near like a leftist Sinn Féin. I'm like a centre-right. If there was a Fine Gael in the north, like their centre-right politics, he'd be on the bus with, with Fine Gael. But there is no Fine Gael up north, so he's voting for the Shinners. And their votes are so valuable that they can't Yeah, sure. They they can't dilute their vote. So anyway, that was an interesting conversation. You lived yeah. up there for a while, Mr. Mann, on your like I don't know, were you on a Fulbright or what were you doing at the time, but like you were living up in the north. What were you at?
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I, I was there oh eight to twenty ten, roughly. I think what's interesting on on Sinn Féin more recently is, uh, they I don't think they really had um, persuasive answers initially to the financial crisis, despite kind of at this time having sort of a uh, a somewhat kind of um, diffuse leftism, but not not particularly uh, coherent. pointed or coherent at yeah. the time. Um, and so they, they didn't really exploit that crisis, the initial one, very well. But they did sort of, it seems like they kind of learned from Occupy, from Syriza, from, you know, from Bernie, from this kind of Corbynism, for the general kind of. The water charges in Ireland, austerity. They learned from austerity. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we had austerity. And they didn't initially, they didn't initially really get on that hard, but then no. I'd say mid mid. 2010s. Exactly. Yeah, They did, and, and that's kind of when they found their voice and their kind of political lane. And, yeah. You know, they are. They're atop your polls again. They're not going to win a majority, and no one's going into government with them, but they are a plurality. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, what's interesting is for people maybe your age um, and older, um, you know, your kind of boom, your speculative boom, really, that transformed the country from, you know, uh, lower middle income almost to kind of, uh, you know, a post-industrial tech kind of economy.
1: Proper Western Um, European kind of economy. That was like
0: at the moments of of formative, the formative years for people kind of your age and older. It's like, you're coming out of, you're in high school, you're coming into college, you're in the job market early on. And it's like, you know, the, uh, ideologically, this kind of free market bullshit would have left a kind of deep influence because that's kind of what seemed to have carried your country and, and it's the go-go times all of a sudden, you know? And yeah. so I think a lot of people probably got swept up in that and, and kind of believing in, in that sort of um, vision of, 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 of politics and of economics I, and everything
1: I think you might be a bit wrong there. I think that Irish people... Don't really have a political ideology. I think that they just they look at a twelve and a half percent corporate tax rate and they mm-hmm. say, "Well, holy shit, that rescued our economy." I like honestly, they don't like they don't look at free markets. They don't look at like they don't they don't look deeply into it at all. They're just like, "Holy shit, there's a bunch of jobs going in Apple, Intel, Microsoft, Facebook,
0: but this Pfizer, say-
1: MSD, wherever."
0: So this Aiden Regan who is, I think, like a, probably a, uh, I don't know if he's uh, officially kind of a, associated with the Shinners, but he, he's a very good political scientist, an Irish fellow. And and he's, I think I tried to get you to read one of his articles called Leprechaun Economics at once. I stage, did read, yeah. Where he's just saying like, one, at least on the tech side, the job creation numbers are fecking marginal. And they're hiring Continentals as much as they're hiring yeah. Irish people. Yeah. So like, this like whatever developmental kind of boost you got, it wasn't well distributed minimally. Um, And I think the notion that there's not kind of uh, secondary effects from all this, and this is where Sinn Féin has recognized that there very much is, and they're kind of picking up, picking up the people that were not um, part of that wave, you know, as you're kind of, uh, you're, you're kind of the, as the labor share of income polarized and like the high skill workers that were kind of plugged into international circuits of capital, all of a sudden we're getting very rich. That meant like the, the kind of one you're dealing with higher levels of inequality than you used to have. And, and that is ripe for politics, right? When inequality goes up, then you can be like, now we have, we have cleavages, we have divisions, we have, we can sell something. Right. Yeah. Um, But, but, so I think like they kind of, uh, the, the effects direct and indirect of this kind of change in your economy, um, whether people wanted to pretend like a 12 and a half corporate income tax has nothing to do with the taxi driver or not, whether they want to pretend that it doesn't affect kind of, uh, the way your society is just organized and the way people perceive in group and out group, it it, it does, you know, because it, it, vastly changed um, the lives and qualities of lives f- for people and, and kind of segmented Ireland in, in a way that it probably wasn't segmented prior to that, um, just by virtue of wealth and where it concentrated.
1: Well, but look, prior to it, we didn't have anything. You know the score. We talked about yeah. this in the, in the last podcast. Like, <laughs> you, you were here. <laughs> you were here, man. You saw, you saw what it was like. You, you saw, like the lack of cars in the streets and the the state of the housing and like the underdevelopment of the country in the in the 80s and 90s you saw you saw it like but this is like you, you might like leprechaun economics or whatever you want to refer to it as like i can i can give you examples like anecdotally certainly but like i have friends who were not the brightest, and you knew some of them, (laughs) and they went and did fucking apprenticeships, basically, with Intel, right? I say they weren't the brightest, they're smart enough, but like, they did apprenticeships with Intel, for example, or multinationals and got in at a good wage. Like, and there was no such thing as a good wage in the 80s. Everybody just left. Like, let's be clear, everybody left. If you wanted to make anything of yourself in the 80s, you left. So these people got in in the mid 90s and did apprenticeships and whatever. And then all of a sudden, Intel funded them to do a degree. Um, and there are so many examples. Like, you have to remember, obviously, we have like a, a semi-civilized education system here versus the United States, where it's like, you know it's not the shitty meritocracy it's like oh you got x amount of points in your leaving cert you can go to whatever college you want that accepts people with that amount of points like and in the 90s you could go to trinity or ucd or wherever you wanted and you could go and get a good degree and you could go and work in a pharmaceutical company and like like i know so many people like obviously you're talking about like the high end of tech in the 2000s 2010 to 2020, that's that's different. And there are a lot of continental people in and there is a lot of this low wage bullshit and it's call centers and it's like remote work and it's a lot of stuff like that. And it's not real. It's not like, it's not proper jobs, if you know what I mean. It is proper jobs, but it's not the kind of jobs that are like careers. But like so many careers were forged no, by for those sure. multinationals throughout the 90s. Like so, so many. And the, ta- and the tax take for that paid for like pay for a lot, and obviously Europe was throwing money. Development funds from Europe were throwing us a lot of money, and 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 all of those people then built houses, and that's what had the housing boom. And then all of those underskilled people could get into the building, like into the construction industry, and like all of a sudden there was a construction boom. And obviously things went to shit in two thousand and eight, but things were things were back in a pretty good place again in twenty nineteen before old COVID hit in 2020 and who knows where yeah, we're going to be now
0: there's still like um regardless there's there's it opened up new segments that didn't you know what i mean like the the kind of whether there was a, a fair few number of people that ended up integrated into this system and that benefited from it is almost a separate question the fact is like breaks in your society that wouldn't have been meaningful before the breaks of education, who became kind of a white collar worker versus who didn't, you know and this is what we see in the US as well. Yeah. It's, those breaks were not as relevant you know, in the past because there weren't that many people that had college degrees. It wasn't as meaningful for your kind of welfare like, and for your wage. It, it, wasn't this, it wasn't this kind of dividing line in one's life that kind of determined, you know what I mean? Like the, the so though the, this benefited lots of people it did kind of create, um, it it created cleavages in in society, right? And one of the more motivating things politically in history is relative deprivation, right? Yeah. Yeah, but like, I mean, our welfare state wasn't
1: wasn't too bad. Do you know what I mean? No, I know.
0: But I know, but that's that's still not addressing the the political consequence of cleavage. You know what I mean? So like, whether the welfare state is—it's much more generous than here. I understand that, and people are looked after to a degree they never be looked after here. But the question of like the political balance, you know, of of these divisions, like it—it it doesn't mean like, um, okay, listen, I can get on the dole and uh, I have access to healthcare, so like, I'm okay, sort of being this uh underclass that you know is made to feel a little shitty and less dignified because like we the the kind of people our society quote unquote values or the people we see propped up are this kind of different this different class of people than what I am you know and I think that's the pol- pol- that's the political cell at least and it's a compelling one because it's just like this this broader thing has left you behind um and, and I think that's kind of why they're even though your, your economy was doing okay by 2019, who polled number one in your last parliamentary elections? Yeah, yeah. And what well, was they, their political just, sell? You know, that it just, it basically,
1: thing. that just showed that, the, like, the, <laughs> the austerity that was foisted upon the people from 2010 to sort of 2015, 2014, 2015, was uh, not accepted or appreciated um, yeah. at all, at all, at all. And people wanted something else. Uh, like if Sinn Fein, Fé- interesting. Back to Sinn Fein. If Sinn Fein, Sinn Fein ran out of candidates, pretty much every single Sinn Fein candidate that ran won. Yeah. Um. And all of a sudden they were like, "Oh crap! If we'd actually ran enough candidates." Well, it's we essentially
0: were- it's essentially a new party. Yeah. Like it's the party is like in a, it's in its birth state. Really, you know what I mean? It, it's kind of um, and it's.
1: And this is and this is what complicates. This is what complicates our, our remembrance of our history. Because this new party, new-ish party has the name. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And
1: and all of all, all of the political actions and military actions of from 1916 to 1921 were all under this banner. And our and our ruling parties, our Fine Gael and Fianna Fail, don't want to like don't want to engage with it. They don't want to engage with it because someone will then question what their part of that legacy is. You know, they'll say so. Basically, what happens is Fine Gael will basically refuse to go into government with Sinn Féin because they'll call them a bunch of terrorists. Basically, right? Fianna Fail, kind of the same. Yet. The reality of it is, like, you know how I view Fine Gael. I mean, Fine Gael sailed over, blessed by the bishop and fought with the fucking fascists in Spain, you know, mm-hmm. you can see a bunch of the brown shirts doing the Kumen, Kumen the Gael guys doing their fucking uh, fascist salutes. Uh, there's some great photographs of it. And it's like, that's the birth of Fine Gael. That's there, bunch of fucking fascists, <laughs> right? And, and Fianna Fall is like the party who basically caused the civil war and had Collins executed, right? And that's that's their legacy, right? So Sinn Féin <laughs> is the one party that even though it's gone through c- complete destruction and rebirth, it still holds the legacy of our nationalism. And so our ruling parties will never accept nationalism. Not that they won't accept it, but they, they don't want to remember it because their heritage isn't in the purest form of it and, and Sinn Féin will openly accept it, but the other guys won't. So so nothing official will ever happen around these things. Like for, for 1920, here's the thing, 1920, it's called the Tan Wars, basically. So when the, the black and tans came in and anyway, look, people listening to this will mostly know what the Tan Wars are. There were a lot of RIC officers killed and we discussed that earlier. Fina Gael were talking about remembering the RIC officers. Like, uh, like honestly, that's where the Irish discourse around remembering our, the birth of our nation is, or the birth of modern Ireland is. It's where the ruling party is so muddled in its ideals and unaccepting of its own history that it tries to, like, remember fondly the occupying fucking terrorists (laughs) from the War of Independence. It's insane. Yeah, it's it's, insane.
0: It's tragic.
1: Uh, I mean, it is really fucking tragic. And like the Kilmichael ambush was a positive. Like it's like these are normal people, farmers and laborers and whatever, who took up fucking guns. They didn't want to go fighting. They didn't want to go fighting, but like civilians were being killed, cities being burnt down—you fucking name it,
0: you know. But this is this. Uh, I mean, we could probably wrap up here, but it's like um, it just kind of. <laughs> we'll take another shot at at liberals.
1: It, it,
0: they kind of have this vision of politics, which is just like incessantly, both sidesism. You know, it's like yes. Listen, there were good men and women on both sides of that thing, and it's also like. It's a politics without conflict, and they cannot fathom that there were people today or in the past that were willing to lay down their own lives and willing to to take take the life of another for a cause because they didn't care purely about like I guess their credit score and whether they could um, get a PS (laughs) five. You know what I mean? Like that they're motivating that like they're like who are these lunatic? Palestinian children that go to the fence in Gaza and get shot. And it's like, maybe they believe in something bigger than their own life. And that's beyond your fucking uh, realm of, you can't even consider that possible mental state. You cannot consider what, it, what, that, um, <laughs> what that worldview is, what that uh, sense of kind of community and devotion and, and sort of, it's just like so outside the even parameters of your cognition you know yeah. and it's uh i don't know the finger gale is probably right <laughs> right in that sort of that sweet spot right now you know and it's just like
1: oh gay. really is yes. they are because they're like the ultimate in it. obviously you've got your 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 gay half immigrant uh, mm-hmm. half indian leader mm-hmm. he's like the kamala harris
0: hey of... we have a half she's also half indian exactly so, I
1: mean, he's the she... he's the kamala harris of um uh, of Irish politics You know yeah. He's a smart guy And he's like Relatively charismatic In his own way uh what But like When it comes to ideologies he, he doesn't have one He's a politician You know He's yeah. like And so is Kamala And I'm not I don't associate them Merely because of their half <laughs> Indian origin It's just because They represent this like Woke Liberal Idealism That is not grounded in any actual solid ideology. Like, it's just fucking tokenism, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. You should have a, did I send you that thing by the, uh, Nigerian American philosopher, fella, uh, what? on, an identity kind of, he wrote this beautiful essay on kind of identity politics. His name is Olufemi Taiwo, I think yeah for the listeners at home have a look at it it's it's fecking genius and he kind of he just puts it it all into like uh streams of thought that i can't come up with right now because i'm a little hungry or i'm not generally capable of that quality of thinking (laughs) to begin with i should say first and foremost but uh (laughs) anyway you should read him
1: all right well look it's late in the night what time is it Fucking it's after midnight Christ on a bike um, Yeah uh, Big love to the missus And um, We've been Satan Scholar I I have been less saintly than usual um, I have enjoyed a cigarette and a whiskey And our scholar is as scholarly as usual um, Chat soon folks Goodbye Peace <laughs>